everyone and welcome to episode 56 of the Retrospectors podcast, Aquinox. My name is Patrick Arthur and I'm joined as always by my co-host James Turlings. Now James, Aquinox is a game that you've been wanting to do for a very long time if our conversations are anything to go by. I think we first started talking about doing this game within the first week of doing the show before we'd even, you know, launched our first three episodes out to the wide world. It's a, you know, a game I'm very, very familiar with. And although we're not a nostalgia driven podcast, generally, um, it's one that I always wanted to do for the show um, to see, you know, because I've never spoken about this game to anybody else before, really. Um, it's a bit of an unknown, you know, uh, gem of my childhood, and I've always wanted to sit down and kind of like debate the, uh, you know, the good and the bad about Aquinox. Yeah, and as for me, um, I was, of course, going to say, um, oh my God, it's another game that no one has ever heard of. And I think this one definitely does kind of fall into that category. Um, I certainly haven't spoken to anyone else about this who knows it uh, until I went to the um, the uh, Archimedean Dynasty Discord and actually spoke to some people, some hardcore fans. So you're listening to the Retrospectors podcast. Um, each and every fortnight, James and I play through a classic game of the past with the intention of uh, figuring out whether that game has truly stood the test of time. This is not a nostalgia podcast. We are not interested, which is going to be hard for James this episode, but we're not interested in understanding and evaluating these games and the times in which they were released. We just want to know, are these games still fun to play today? Have they truly stood the test of time? Are they worth playing in amongst all the brilliant titles that get released today? So this fortnight, of course, we're covering Aquinox, a sequel to Archimedean Dynasty. This game is going to be our second ever sequel episode, actually. You might not know it, but the um, the first title in the series, Archimedean Dynasty, came out in like 1996, and it's obviously got a very different name to Aquinox. But it is a direct, Aquinox is a direct sequel to that title, which we covered back in episode 32, so quite some time ago now. Um, so yeah, this is this is James's dream uh, dream episode. Originally, he wanted to do Aquinox, but we decided we should go back and do the first one in the series first. Yeah, and I'm quite glad we did do that because we actually both ended up fairly high on the first game, uh, more than I expected going into it. Uh, It had, you know, really good world building and some really interesting tactical combat that took a bit to master. It was a mess to control, but it was a wonderful mess to control, uh, in my opinion. Yeah, it gave me some good practice for playing System Shock. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Similar difficulty. Difficulty in UI control between those two games, I'd say. Oh yeah, maybe. But one makes a bit more sense in my eyes. But well, you know, we've already hashed out that conversation on previous episodes. <laughs> yeah. So as I said, it's the um, it's a second game in the Aquinox series. Um, even though Archimedean Dynasty was the first in the series, these games collectively are considered to be the Aquinox series. It was developed by Massive Development, um, which is the same company that did the previous title, and it was released in 2001. For those who've never played these games before, it's a first-person submarine arcade sim. It's set in a dystopian world where all of humanity has had to retreat underwater due to a nuclear war, and most of the world, or all of the world, at least the vast majority of the world, has 
um, gone underneath sea level because both uh, Antarctica and the Arctic caps melted as a result of the nuclear war. So Earth is just a big watery mass and all of humanity lives under the oceans. Yeah. Uh, for those who want a point of comparison and have no idea what I'm talking about when I say submarine sim, the closest point of reference are, are like space fighting sims, um, like TIE Fighter, because you've still got that 360 degrees range of movement and your submarine doesn't stall like a um like a fighter plane would if you've been playing more traditional flight sims yeah when you say submarine it's much more closer to like i guess like a spaceship underwater honestly the way they look yeah i i say submarine only in the sense that it's a vessel that is underwater you're right that it's a fighter a fighter craft or a bomber craft that you're controlling uh, so after um, after Aquinox release in 2001, just for your guys' information, um, Aquinox 2 came out in 2003. And most interesting of all, uh, another game in this series was just released in October of 2020 last year called Aquinox Deep Descent. And uh, unfortunately for fan of this series, it has had some fairly atrocious reviews. Like, really quite bad. I actually backed it on Kickstarter when it came out, because Aquinox is a game that I owned, you know, since I was like eight years old or something. My dad, when he bought a new computer um got a whole bunch of software for free with his new computer and aquinox was one of the games in that case whenever i'd go to my dad's house for the weekend to spend time with him you know uh i would always always end up playing aquinox in his old computer that was your that was your father-son bonding time was it <laughs> that was my father fun's bonding time yep so aquinox is a game i'm very fond of and as such, I backed it on Kickstarter when, you know, this dead series came back from the grave with a THQ Nordic taking interest in it. And uh, unfortunately, you know, not the game of my dreams, the long, you know, lost sequel to one of my favorite games ever. But, you know, the fact that it got something at all is probably, I'm probably going to enjoy it anyway, right? Well, at the end of the day, we're lucky that we're not a modern game review podcast, James, because we're talking about yeah. the original. <laughs> Um, so before we get into our discussion of this game, um, there were just some technical issues that we need to address. One substantial one, and then I have a few small things I need to go over. So the number one issue you're going to have if you try and play Aquinox in this day and age is you're going to get into the game and your mouse is not going to work. You're not going to be able to control your craft at all. And that's because when this game came out, the DPI of mice was way, 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 way lower than the 2,000 and 3,600 and 8,000 DPI mice that are common today. So there are two ways to fix this. You can either download a mouse fix, which is what James and I both did, and it handily fixed the issue. And then you just configure your sensitivity fairly low, like uh, between... I had mine, I think, at a sensitivity of 10 uh, out of 100. So you need, still need to go yeah. quite low to match the higher DPI of mice. Or you can just manually lower your DPI to something ridiculously low, like 150. Um, either one would be pretty effective, but I mean, I highly recommend uh, downloading the mouse fix. Yeah, it was super easy. Uh, we'll link to it on the show notes. Uh, it was like, you know, drop a folder into the game's installation folder. That was it. You didn't have to do anything funny. It just worked out of the box for me. Yeah, um, one more minor note. When you configure your mouse sensitivity, be aware that there is a different 
option for your X sensitivity and your Y sensitivity. Something I didn't figure <laughs> out at first and left me very confused and thinking it wasn't working. But yeah, you have to you have to set both to be low. Otherwise, you're going to be have a lot of movement on one axis and not on the other. Um, I also encountered a couple of other bugs and maybe something that's not quite a bug, but I may as well bring it up here. Um, the first big thing is that there is a ship-specific bug. Uh, one of the ships called the Phobos Caster. It's the most powerful ship you have access to for a good chunk of the game. If not, is that the end game ship, the Phobos Caster, or do you get one more? I believe it's the best fighter ship you get. Uh, I think there's uh, another bomber after that, but... Uh... The Phobocast is the fastest ship, I believe. So I don't know if you ever had this issue, James, but whenever I was in the Phobocaster, if I got hit by an EMP missile and my shields got uh, got taken uh, out... Yes, that did happen to me. Yeah. So basically, you lose mouse control of your ship um, just permanently, whereas in the other ships, uh, you know, your shields regenerate and you can start moving again. Yeah, instead of being stunned for 5 to 10 seconds, you just get removed from the game like that's it you, yeah. you can't you can't yeah. move anymore so that's a real problem because it's like the best ship so you kind of have to downgrade to the um to the succubus 2 or another bomber uh so yeah that that ship kind of becomes obsolete uh far before it should and it was very frustrating but luckily it was easy enough to figure out yeah so just be aware uh later in the game like the majority of the enemies have emp weapons uh so it is a a big issue i had an issue where i lost a mission inside a cutscene. uh what not not a literal <laughs> cutscene, but like a a mid-mission sort of thing where you lose control and someone's speaking to on comms so somehow I completed one objective and while this mid-mission cutscene was playing, it triggered the loss condition in the middle of it. So <laughs> so I was like, what? The cutscene ended and then the mission was lost and I had to retry. It only happened once, but when it happened, I was like, what the fuck game? There was this bug I know that sometimes, it happens rarely, but sometimes your allies will try to shoot through you and they end up like friendly firing you to death. I read about that happening on the line. Uh, it never happened to me, but apparently it is possible. Yeah. Um. And the final thing I wanted to mention. Sorry, James. Do you have Do you have any other notable bugs before I go on to this? Not quite a bug, but thought it was worth bringing up anyway. Um. Yeah. So one of my missions. Um. Just didn't end. Um. This happened to me. I. It was probably the longest mission in the game too. At the end, like I, I sat there for like ten minutes doing the objective, and it just never came to an end. Um. Thankfully, the game does allow you to. If you change in Steam, if you change the launch option options, you can enable a level skip button. So I did use mm. that for that one mission, nice. um, which did help there. But yeah, that was a bit annoying. Yeah, no, I, I was able to end all my missions. Usually, when I couldn't figure it out there'd be some tank in some crater that no one could see or find and then i've eventually found it and destroyed it um i do want to bring this up though because this isn't quite a bug but it had the had the feel of a bug the, i think there might might have been some scripting or translation issues with some of the things going on um the notable one is where you have this mission where you have to take a ship out into the open ocean then you prime a self-destruct button on it to destroy it, not to, like, create a big explosion. You're just trying to destroy it. That's all that's happening in the mission. But if you let that ship then get blown apart by the enemy, you lose the mission. And 
that made zero sense to me and it seems like perhaps there was something that wasn't explained or lost in translation i thought it was pretty obvious the idea was that the ship is filled with uh, explosive material like the you know specifically mining explosive material in order to launch like a terrorist attack so you can't let the enemies explode it too close to civilization. You have to wait for it to be out in the, the deep ocean for it to explode, I thought was the idea. No, no, no. But what will happen is the guy will say, I've primed the self-destruct. It's time for us to go. And a waypoint appears on your map telling you to go out, you know, retreat to the waypoint because the ships are going to self-destruct in 20 seconds. If you turn around and head towards the waypoint, but an enemy ship is still firing at it, and it destroys it, you lose the mission. After yeah, that sounds like a bugger and oversight more than a translation issue to oh, me. Okay, like sure. they, for- they forgot to change the trigger or something like that. Yeah, and then there were a couple of times where I was told it was essential to like protect a structure, and then I got a mission failure when a specific submarine got destroyed and stuff. And none of these things are major bugs, but there's just some, there's some kind there's a little bit of inaccuracy in some of the scripting here. It's it's like a lack of quality control oversight where they didn't try and be uber precise with the kinds of things that would naturally happen. Uh, Yeah, but those, those are more minor things and you can mostly work your way through it. Um, Yeah. So that covers it. So there are a couple of notable bugs, but Generally, the game just functions fine once you've got that mouse fix installed. Alrighty, uh, I think it's time to talk about the video game, James. Yeah, where did you want to start? Well, let's just... So, so uh, Aquinox is a direct sequel to Archimedean Dynasty. So we should just give a little bit of background on that game before we launch into Aquinox. So in Archimedean Dynasty, you play as Emerald Flint. You're a mercenary, a pirate, a gun for hire... He's a very monotone, deadpan sort of operator um, who is a self-professed chaser of credits. He just wants money. Um, Over the course of Archimedean Dynasty, he uh, starts off the bottom of the barrel after losing his ship, works his way up to, you know, better and better things. He gradually becomes entrapped in this global plot, which is that an alien race called the Biants have discovered Earth and are seeking, uh, you know, humanity's energy sources and life masses in order to um, to propagate. They seem kind of almost a bit Zerg-like in their desire to expand. And Flint, you know, after taking on a series of increasingly dangerous missions, kind of becomes the point man to defeating this Bion threat. I believe the Bions were a rogue, like rogue self-replicating AI more than like an mm. alien invader. Um, but yeah, the, the plot of Archimedean Dynasty um, basically ends with, you know, the main character Flint and the, uh, like all of the, the major regions of the, the planet coming together to defeat the stronghold of the Bions, the Savion, just off the coast of Australia. Um and the get an equinox takes place directly after these events. Um, five maybe, years, yeah, five years after the events of Archimedean Dynasty. So in Aquinox, you'll once again retain control of Flint. You land at a regular pirate docking station, and someone pinches your ship. So you have to start from scratch again. Um, you know this is fine. Like you need some way to reset your power level, and someone stealing your ship is as good a way as any. Um, and the game doesn't literally start you from scratch because uh, Flint maintains all of his relationships 
and kind of uh, connections with all of the people that he's encountered in the previous game. But it is a power level reset. You know, you're in a far more basic craft than, you know, the most powerful vessel in all of uh, all of the world, like he was at the end of um, Archimedean Dynasty. Uh, and that's where Aquinox uh, starts off. You are you start taking on small missions, and then once again you become enraptured in a far grander and complicated plot that's going on from the various factions that are scheming with one another. So, James, uh, I think that the best way for us to talk about this is to begin with the world building of these games, and then move on to onto the plot later. We should um we should mention. I don't think we did earlier. If you haven't listened to our episode on Archimedean Dynasty, we strongly recommend you do so first because this is a direct sequel. We're going to be making a lot of references to it and comparisons, and it might not make sense if you don't really know what the references and comparison points are. Um, I'm sure you'll still get a lot out of this episode if you haven't, but we strongly advise you listen to that one. It's a great episode. I think you'll get a lot out of it, and it will give more meaning and value to this one. So I think that the place I want to start is talking about the scope of Aquinox. And I'm going to start off strong with a criticism of this game. Because one of the things that I absolutely loved about Archimedean Dynasty was the multifactional nature of the conflict. You had the Middle Eastern faction, you had the Eastern slash Chinese Russian faction, and then you had the Western Democratic Capitalist faction, and then of course you had the pirates messing with everything. And a lot of the scope and story of Archimedean Dynasty is that all of these factions are kind of at one another's throats, but as time goes on and as the scale of the threat that the Bayant pose to all of them kind of arises and becomes clear, they come together and they work collectively together to take on this threat. It's a very natural escalation with a very satisfying um, end with them cooperating. One of the problems I have with Aquinox compared to Archimedean Dynasty is that the scope is drastically reduced. We don't interact with the um, Middle Eastern or Eastern factions at all. We do get a couple of little references to them, but all of the plot is concentrated on pirates and the Western faction. And of course, Entrox, which is the mega global corporation that has their uh, toes in every single basket in existence. Um, So the first question I've got to ask you, James, is that did you find this reduction in the scope of the conflict and kind of these interactions to be a regression in the same way that I did? Or did you think that a smaller scope was fine and that the, the nature of the conflict justified a reduction in scale? So I do think that there's something missing here by leaving out like two thirds of the world here. Um, I do think in general it's more of a side grade. So one of the big criticisms we had um, of Archimedean Dynasty was uh, the characters were very flat. Um, So I think what they've done here with Aquinox is that they've made this trade where they've traded this big global scope where you're kind of like... I guess more interested in the overarching macro level political movements of the, you know, the various factions. And it's kind of like zoomed in a lot uh, and become much more character focused instead. I, in general, prefer the way it's done here, 
although I did find myself, like, having played this game, because I'd never played Archimedean mm. Dynasty before, right? So this is the first time I've played through Aquinox since I've actually gone back and played the original. And this time playing through the game, it like, like you said, it did stick out like a sore thumb uh, how much of the world was missing in this game. Yeah, so I think that there is a place for reduced scale. And in fact, I've spoken to you about this at length. Um, two, there's these two big epic fantasy series, uh, Malazan Book of the Fallen and um, Brandon Sanderson's Stormlike Archive. And it's quite funny because with both of those books, after these expansive, huge conflicts at the end of book three, both of them for book four really reduce the scale of things right down um, to tell a more character-driven story. So, and I think that both of those books were right to do so. If you have, you can't forever be expanding the scope of the conflict. However, with this game, I found that I didn't really connect to the characters, so it didn't work for me. For the most part, I thought the characters in this game were incredibly annoying caricatures, and in some places I would say outright racist in their depiction. Uh, so... I didn't like these characters with one or two, one or two aside. And I think that if you're going to reduce it to the scale of a character drama, you really have to nail those characters. So I found that, um, I, I think that is a good, a good reason that it was a trade-off, but if they don't get the characters right, then it doesn't end up working at all. Okay. Well, let's talk about the difference in the plot presentation, um, in Aquinox compared to Archimedean Dynasty. Um, in both games, the gameplay and I guess the story sections are very heavily segmented from one another. Um, so in the gameplay missions, you're in your you know your submarine craft and you shoot dogfighting around with your enemies. And then between missions, um, you're basically in these almost like like adventure text style uh, gameplay. In Equinox, it's much closer to like a visual novel, I'd say, than. Uh, Archimedean Dynasty, which was all like you had these backgrounds of the locations you were in, like you were in a bar and you had this picture of a bar and you had some text boxes popping up and you'd read the dialogue. Uh, here it's a lot more in your face with your characters, right? You've got these character portraits now uh, and a lot of voice dialogue um, and you've got a lot of conversation. I'd say honestly, most of my time in this game uh, was spent in the conversation dialogue bits. Uh, as opposed to the you know the actual combat it's like almost more story focused than there is gameplay here compared to Archimedean Dynasty which I think the missions were in general quite a bit longer uh, and took up a lot more of your time on that specific note I think that's because the missions in AD were also a lot harder so I died and failed them a yeah. lot more so <laughs> getting through a mission took more effort um, do you prefer the style, the visual novel style presentation to the um, more, here's a map, here are the places where people would logically be, here are some more longer, more naturalistic conversations, or do you like the way that the characters pop up? with the voice acting so it's funny i don't think these two things are mutually exclusive uh and i think this because the sequel equinox 2 actually combines them mm. uh so you have both um in archimedean dynasty you would go to a, like a bar and there'd be a bunch of characters standing around the bar and you could click on them to bring up the dialogue boxes here, your phone just kind of rings and you just click on like this list of people. It's a lot more, less, I guess, immersive in this game. Uh, it's a lot more immersive in Archimedean Dynasty. And so they go kind of go back to that 
um, in the next game. I quite prefer the like the character portraits and the spoken dialogue to what there was in Archimedean Dynasty. I felt like in Archimedean Dynasty, every single character was like super flat, and I cannot remember you know any of the characters like even flint in the first game barely has any personality in my mind like i can remember lots of the characters in aquinox because they're so exaggerated i'm gonna say they're a yes. lot more in your face um and you know stylized uh, i much prefer this i think it does take it a bit too far in this direction um, and it, I can agree with you, in some cases the characters can be a bit more annoying. They're much more in your face, much more like wacky and zany uh, compared to the Archimedean Dynasty characters, which were kind of like grounded but boring in my opinion. So I prefer the direction here, um, but I think they've taken it a bit too far. So I think that just having them pop up in your phone is a is far worse than having these people live and live, you know, logically be in the places around the station. Like yes. when you went to El Topo, he was always in his office. And then you, the, you'd you see the engineers on the docks and you'd have people getting drunk in the bar. And it's a small thing, but things like that do a lot to make you believe in the world and the place. When you're at a station and they're just popping up in your phone, it's harder, much harder to get a sense of place that this is a living, breathing, breathing location. Um, to me, I, I think you raise some good points about... I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. I struggle to remember the characters in the same way they do in this game. But to me, it's a problem of execution. If these Dany characters weren't as annoying as they were, and if they were better written... A lot of what these characters do is just kind of dump gobbledygook at you where they're just talking about, you know, various dishes to be consumed. They're talking about the scientific process of extracting helium from rocks or they're just telling you all the drugs that they're taking and that are available. Just these big, long kind of technical lists of crap that don't actually make any sense or invest any personality into the character they're just they're just stuff that it's being dumped dumped on top of you and i think that that is a very very poor way to bring these characters to life and in the end the thing that stands out the most is the whiny and unprofessional and poor voice acting and the character yeah. portraits like in Archimedean Dynasty, when these boring characters said boring things as part of a conversation, I think it really fit really well. These zany characters shouldn't be speaking in such a technical German way. There should be more more poetry to the way they speak, or they should be talking about stuff that isn't so factual and dry. Okay, I actually completely disagree with this fact, actually. Um... The way I would describe, like, the dialogue in this game is by far my favorite part of the game, actually. Um, I think there are a couple of characters that are really annoying, and I agree with you um, that the voice acting is easily the worst part of the game, by far, in my opinion. It is, like, atrociously bad. It it's really weird to me that you say that the dialogue has no sense of, like, poetry or like the the they use a lot of intricate dialogue here to express a lot of interesting concepts uh you know there's characters that you talk to like scientists that to start telling you interesting facts about you know marine biology and you know the way you know the gulf stream works and that kind of thing they and all of the facts in this game 
uh, pretty well researched too. Like there's a big point in the game where one of the big energy corporations, the big energy corporation, uh, is exploiting the Bermuda Triangle for methane hydrate, which is this energy source that today we haven't really been able to uh, exploit properly, but it's like potentially a billion dollar industry, right? Um, and this game goes into stuff like that all the time. Um, I The way, honestly, I, I've got in my notes, the way I would describe the dialogue in this game, specifically in the cutscenes where you've got Flint monologuing in a pretty, like, I I, find, I love the cutscenes in this game. I think that the, the dialogue is excellent. The way I would describe it uh, is almost like, it's like cyberpunk Max Payne is how I feel about it. Um, I like the dialogue in those cutscenes more than in Max Payne. It's got that really, like, stylized, and I think it pulls it off pretty well for the most part. Uh, I will say that the cutscenes are fairly well done. Um, at times a little ironic, but that's how film noir always has been. But I yeah. strongly disagree with you on the dialogue. The thing about film noir dialogue is that there's a lot of empty space. There's a lot of subtlety and implication things things not said it's it's it is to me the opposite of how this does it where someone just starts dumping and explaining this complicated process to you that isn't film noir that isn't the kind of dialogue i think of when i think of those great noir films or even things like the expanse when two people are having a drink in a bar and the femme fatale is there, you'll see that they talk about nothing, but really they're talking about everything because there's a hidden meaning and phrase behind every single word being spoken. This is not what the writing is like in this game. And that's where I think the noir sort of thing that comes from in the cutscenes, which I also love, is completely at odds with interacting with these characters um, in these phone visual novel pop-ups. So you agree about the cutscenes, but not the dialogue? Am I getting that right? Broadly speaking, yes. The cutscenes have this feeling of noir, but the dialogue and your interactions with characters does not. It lacks the subtlety and nuance of traditional film noir. Okay, I can agree with that. Um, I do think it's a lot more direct and maybe a bit unnatural at times. Yeah, it's not naturalistic. That's the that's the key thing. Yeah, but I guess it doesn't really bother me because I feel like the sense of world building here is for me better than it was in Archimedean Dynasty. You get a real feeling for how the characters in this awful situation kind of live, right? This is a dystopian society where the surface is ruined and completely uninhabitable because of nuclear war. And everybody's kind of living this life on the edge down beneath, you know, the waves. And I think that Archimedean Dynasty didn't really delve into the societal problems that such a society would face. Uh, I think Aquinox does that a lot better here. They talk about stuff like the breathing gas requirements and, you know, what happens when there's, you know, some drunk guy and his ship blowing holes in one of the, like, the habitats. Like, that's horrifying, right? Um, you know, people getting sucked out of the building. Um, the drug and narcotics industry uh, is insane. And, like, they've started to kind of reclaim the scientific progress that existed on the Earth which kind of led to the nuclear fallout initially. And like, because life under the seas is a lot less regulated, I guess, you end up with this almost like Bioshock situation where like genetic engineering is like going unchecked and causing 
you know, all these problems throughout society. And I felt like this game delved into all those topics in a really interesting way, as opposed to Archimedean Dynasty, which was like really dry during all of its conversations and was just kind of like, okay, this faction wants this resource, so it goes here, that's it. I think it delved into those things in an incredibly surface level way. It didn't actually dig in under the surface. It just mentioned them and then it moved on to the next thing. I was One of the things that was really interesting that just pops up and then disappears into the mist is this idea that there are boredom acts of terrorism arising from teenage boredom. Teenagers are getting bored and they're literally blowing up things and destroying things because they ha- they're bored and they have nothing to do and they can't really see a future for themselves. Great, let's expand on that. Boom, literally never mentioned again. The genetic engineering thing kind of happens. I was like, I bet this entire game is going to be about genetic engineering and about the new wave of humans. No, has nothing to do with the plot. We never really get into it in a deeper sense. It's all mentioned on the side, but there's we don't really have a connection to it as Flint, the mercenary pirate. Yeah, and to me, that's kind of what makes it brilliant, right? Because this is a living, breathing society where there are all these problems, and lots of these problems exist out of the scope of the main character, right? The world exists beyond the main character's struggle. You know, he's a mercenary. He cares about getting paid. You know, the world building is there whether he cares about it or not you know like every little piece of detail isn't just about the main plot it's about making the whole world feel like there are these problems in society maybe maybe i as the main character aren't dealing with them but they exist there and like they've thought about lots and lots of different scenarios that could be issues um in an undersea society and i think that having them there at a surface level kind of makes it feel more natural to me um, rather than, you know, delving deep on every single thing, right? Why would you do that? We're playing as a mercenary. He doesn't give a shit. He just wants to do the job and get some money. Well, the critical distinction that I would say is that uh, that Aquinox does a lot of telling and not a whole lot of showing. Now, what you could have, for example, this is a random example that I'm pulling out of my hat. Um, what if Flint had a connection with a character whose family member was involved in one of these boredom bombings. And then he has to go on a mission in relation to that boredom bombing to find the cult leader or terrorist leader or whoever who's encouraging these kids to do this. That's a way to create a personal connection and delve a little deeper that is connected to our main character, the mercenary. It's not enough to say this is an issue you need to show it and it needs to have a connection. I, I think that for it to be real, it needs to have a connection to a, to a character. Mentioning it once as an issue that society faces for me is not enough. So I want to separate this into two separate criticisms because I think that I partially agree with you and partially don't. Mm-hmm. So I do like that there's all this world building that isn't related to the main character because it makes the world feel more real to me. Um, what I think the game does a very poor job uh, is making individual characters feel like they have uh, good you know, motivations long-term, making them feel like they have character depth. Like, if the game had more like took one of these top like one of these topics and delved into it really deep i'm still okay with having like a hundred different like little tidbits all around the world for you to find yeah that's fair i think that the fact that it doesn't do it with any of these individual topics is a huge mark against the game and i agree with that 
Um, I don't think that having lots of little surface details uh, on its own is a negative on the game. Okay, that's that's a fair way to put it because a lot of a lot of those small details can therefore exist through implication. If you can make a couple of these things real, then everything else feels real. Yeah, and and don't get me wrong, it's not it's not like I hate the detail. I was I was interested in it as well. I just felt like it was a poor match for the change in presentation that Aquinox had gone through. The more info dumpy stuff suited the dry and dull world of Archimedean Dynasty better than it did um, Aquinox, and I wish it had leaned more heavily into its zany presentation. Um, I guess. Although the characters themselves are still too zany. So it's obviously a, uh, a difficult line to strike correctly. Yeah, I don't think it does it perfectly. Um, in terms of world building as a whole, I think because of these, like all of this extra consideration that has gone into lots of little things, um, I do feel a lot more attached to the world here. But, you know, overall, I think it does feel less cohesive, especially when we start talking about the main plot, which I think for the first like 60% of the game makes like a very logical path. And then all of a sudden it becomes a bit of a, uh, a bit of a clusterfuck to be honest. Yeah. But before we get into that, I think it's time for a music break, Jimmy. Whoa, it's 40 minutes already. We've been going for a while. Um, so I actually quite like some of the music, not all of it, um, in this game, uh, as you probably guessed. Uh, my favorite piece of music is actually the main menu theme. Like Archimedean Dynasty, uh, the soundtrack as a whole isn't superb, and it oftentimes feels a bit at odds with the rest of the game. But I think the main menu theme in particular is quite like haunting and imposing uh, and I, I love it to bits. So here is the main menu theme of Aquinox. I think it does a, uh, a brilliant job of kind of setting the scene for, you know, the rough life underneath the ocean.
and that was the main theme of Aquinox. Uh, both James and I were very were quite low on um, Archimedean Dynasty soundtrack, and I'm happy to say that although I didn't love uh, Aquinox's soundtrack, I certainly thought it was better. Um, I don't know what it is about the old techno, but I think that when the fidelity of music improves in games, particularly with techno, it does make a dramatic improvement. This drum and bass techno will never be my favorite genre, but I kind of got more into it in this game. The other thing that I think made it suit it better is that it's more the gameplay suits this kind of frantic music far better than it did in AD. AD, you would often be battling two to three ships at once, whereas in um, Aquinox, you're battling like 10 at the same time so the the music really suits the pace of engagement um, much more they're, they're much smaller tighter missions so you're in the thick of the action and the mission a lot better so um i thought it was it was all right to good uh, i didn't love it but um if you like this kind of music i'm sure you'll adore it i think that there's another thing on top of the things that you said and i agree with what you've said so far um I think that there's been a, an aesthetic change between the two games. And I think that in Aquinox, lots of the characters are just like covered in like technological pieces of like bits and pieces all over their face. Like so many characters have like, it almost feels like, you know, how like in Bioshock, there are the splices and they've like completely modified their bodies. This kind of like aesthetic fits the like techno style music a lot better in my opinion. That's an excellent point. The aesthetic style does give you more of a cyberpunky feel than the bleaker world of Archimedean Dynasty ever did. Absolutely. Um and I think that the soundtrack just fits that a lot better. There aren't that many tracks, um, but I do like most of them. Uh, one thing I did like about the tracks is that most of them do start with this little like quieter moment, which usually at the start of a mission, there's a lot of dialogue to introduce like uh, your objectives and that kind of thing. And that kind of like works really well with the soft start of the music, which generally they time it quite well to have the music kick into gear just as the like actual control of the ship uh, takes place. And I quite enjoyed that. Yeah, so um, music was pretty good. I uh, didn't love it, but it was solid throughout. Yeah. Um, should we talk about the primary plot, James? Yeah, sure. Where did you want to start? Uh, so we should probably explain it on a basic level. Uh, so Flint gets... Uh, there's this program called the Brain Freeze Program. It remains very mysterious. Sorry. The Brain Fire Program. I was close. <laughs> Maybe I've got brain freeze. Yeah. <laughs> so it's called the Brain Fire Program, and Flint gets involved with it, um, stealing codes to access it, and then being brought on by the organizers to protect it, and eventually uh, is critically involved in launching a uh, launching the brain freeze program effectively. And as time goes, I said brain freezing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the brain fire program. And um, as time goes on, the true nature of the brain fire program gets revealed and um, more shenanigans ensue. I'm being deliberately vague to to avoid uh, spoilers, but uh, it, it ends with a big bang. 
Yeah, in a, in broad strokes, the game begins with Flint um, and his newly formed mercenary crew, uh, who weren't with him last game, have been tasked by the government to hunt down the remnants of the Biance, the uh, you know the self-replicating robot ships. So, you know, you lose your, your ship gets stolen, and then you get this like piece of garbage ship that you know for the first few missions you're hunting down Biance scrap and you know remnant Biance ships that you know aren't very strong on their own and there's only a couple of them and you know eventually the mercenary missions that you're taking do start to lead you towards this brain fire project that's going on in the tornado zone which is like a really almost lawless area of the sea there's like some sort of like makeshift government with these you know these wealthy individuals kind of excising their power but for the most part the tornado zone is you know filled with like the riffraff of the sea pirates and scumbags and swindlers and the like um and because it's such a like a lawless zone uh the 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 major government of the atlantic federation has decided that you know it's the perfect place to start this like shady scientific endeavor because you know these like lazy lax people who don't have a lot in life won't give a shit do anything to stop it um so you know uh you you're working for the government a lot and there's lots of like build up towards this brain fire project like uh early on uh the old boss of uh entrox energy transport oxygen which is like the big you know capitalistic power structure of the you know the world um decides that they don't want brain fire to continue so of course you get hired to go and you know steal the uh the data codes from them and you know you go through all these like these twists and turns for brain fire to you know finally happen and then i think it's at this point in the story where it starts going off the rails a bit they introduce a whole bunch of extra factions without giving them uh a whole lot of depth and by the end of the game like you're fighting like there's like three or four factions at the same time it's a bit of a clusterfuck so let's go back a bit because i have problems with the plot even before then um so we're gonna go into spoilers now because i need to go into spoilers to talk about this with you james so skip forward if you don't want spoilers yeah okay so um at one point in this game and this is before brain fire happens uh, an admiral who is apparently Flint's father figure and an old friend called Cox. That's spelled C-O-X for all you 15-year-olds, and yes, I laughed at the same time. Uh, he decides that he's going to rebel against the New Line government, which everyone refers to as dictators that have gone mad with power. And then instead of Flint going, huh, maybe I should give this guy a phone call or maybe I should go join him, instead decides to team up with the other admiral who he doesn't like, who he doesn't trust, who he's told by everyone not to trust, and sides with him to basically sabotage everything that Cox is doing in the, on the pretense that in doing so he is keeping him out of trouble. This shit makes no sense to me, James. Why Flint Flint is a mercenary. That's who he is by blood. Why wouldn't he at the very least give Admiral Cox a phone call and find out why he is doing what he's doing? The phone call thing is a bit weird. Um, I do think they do an okay job of leading up to this. 
there is like a whole bunch of conversations where this character starts sounding a bit like he's going off the deep end. Uh, the characters remark on this fact, and to me, it seems pretty clear that a bunch of them would think that he's in the wrong, um, and that like he needs to be uh, rescued. He doesn't seem open to you know uh, diplomacy or whatnot. He's just taken hostages at the parliament uh, and has taken over you know a radio tower and is spouting propaganda. He he didn't take hostages. That was a lie. That, that yeah, uh, you're told, told that yeah. basically. Yeah. yeah. But, but the thing is, Flint isn't a line officer that obeys his orders, right? Like, he's kind of been... He's come into the government, uh, working for the government for credits. But his origins are in being a mercenary. And from everything that everyone was saying, not just what Cox was saying, the government that was in power was basically evil. They were being, they were turning into a dictatorship and going mad with these experiments and everything. Um, basically, there was just cause for a revolution, which is what the coup and what Admiral Cox was was starting. Why wouldn't Flint be able to see that? Flint is exactly the sort of person who's worked with all sides, from pirates to the, you know, to the Chinese, to the Americans, to Entrox. He's exactly the kind of person who would see. Cox's side and the fact that he's refused to side with him or even consider or entertain siding with him struck me as a serious problem it it isn't consistent with the character with the character I think you raise a fair point actually to be honest um mm. I haven't actually considered it from this angle because to me I guess the suspension of disbelief you know through the way the characters were acting towards each other through the dialogue was enough for me but I guess now that you mention it the fact that they don't you know have this radio conversation at all past him going off the or like supposedly going off the deep end uh, is probably yeah is a huge question mark yeah I, I think that you could have made this work but you would have needed to have Cox do something like like on the surface seems crazy like Let's say he attacks Parliament House and kills half the politicians. Okay, now I understand. Now it makes sense. But Cox is ju it just seems to be trying to instigate a peaceful coup, or as peaceful as it could be. Hell, you're even attacked with EMP weapons, uh, like harmless weapons, when you try to when you try to stop him doing what he's doing. So. I don't know. It just really irritated me that this happened. It was very contrived. There was a way to write this differently and it didn't happen. Just because a government's in power doesn't mean that it's a just government. And I mean, this is something that happened in Archimedean Dynasty. You're personally responsible for overthrowing multiple governments, yeah. which is ends up being a central plot in this plot point in this game, because a lot of those former governments are out for revenge. So if that's the case, there's no reason why... Cox overthrowing this government couldn't be just as just as good and in fact seems seems exactly the same as the other ones that occurred. So yeah, this this was the point where the plot started to go off the rails for me a little bit earlier than you. I guess the one thing that does bring it back a bit for me is there is a line, um there is a conversation with Cox um before he goes AWOL, I guess, where he does tell Flint to trust Commander Sewell and to do what he says. Um, so I can kind of see that as him listening to, I guess, the sane version of his close friend. You know, like uh, he's trusting the past self of this person who's gone off the deep end to do the right thing. All oh, right. To, to me, that was just like stay out of typical stay out of trouble talk. 
You know, yeah. it's like, I don't want you, uh, you know, particularly because it's the father-son dynamic. You know, he doesn't want him doing any stupid and following him in his crazed revolution. Yeah, because, I mean, for the most part, Cox has been, like, he doesn't like Sewell as a character. Like, he hates the guy. But mm. he does seem to think that they should be working with him and working towards brain fire. So, I mean, from from that angle, like, he's just kind of following the initial intents and not really understanding what's going on. Um for the most part, I do think Flint is a bit too trusting of Sewell. Sewell always like struck me as a shady character. Um, it's like so easily manipulated here. It's kind of silly. Um, you can see it coming a mile away. But assuming that he isn't, you know, the most obvious villain in history, uh, I can kind of see Flint working with him under that pretense that they are going to end the conflict peacefully. Sure, yeah. It's particularly grating because... <laughs> Because Flint literally went to the um to you know that I don't remember the name of the base, but it was in the tornado zone. It was the pirate base in the rock face. Yes. And he literally uh infiltrated, became the right hand man of the top dog, and then betrayed him all in one fell swoop. Literally yes. in amongst pirates. Master manipulator and infiltrator. And then he just gets suckered by Sewell so easily. Um so the brain fire program. So we're into spoilers so we can keep talking about it. So the brain fire program is about sending a boy to the surface and then that boy is able to communicate uh, with satellites. And the satellite that they communicate with is a military satellite that has a laser and that laser is able to start volcanoes and earthquakes by shooting its laser down. All good so far, right? Like a very powerful tool. Uh, can you explain to me, I might have missed something, why did Sewell fire the laser? Like, what was the, what was the, what was the goal? <laughs> because, because Sewell spends all this time getting this laser, and then he fires the laser, and everything goes fucking sideways, and I just don't know what his end goal was. Basically, the way I understand it, um, is that Sewell comes from this, like, very progressive line of government where they're trying to like push genetic engineering as far as it will go mm -hmm. you know like to the point where they want to engineer people who don't need to sleep so they can work like 24 7 and the ultimate you know capitalistic dream uh with uh you know expendable infinite work hours um and i think that from what i interpreted was that this was a display of power like he's saying look i have this now because up until this point you get this sense that things in the senate aren't going so well right like they're trying to push for all these new laws and that kind of thing but people mm -hmm. aren't agreeing with them so they're kind of at this like political standstill with yeah know, Sewell's, Sewell's being expelled from the official government at this point yeah um yeah. so like i think because he has a plan right he's the guy he wants to take humanity to these new points of evolution and he wants to make yeah. a new a new society that can more because there's this there's this new race of people that's been developed recently that can breathe underwater much more easily uh well at all really i guess um and so the way i think of it is that he's trying to like push humanity you know as like a dictatorship because he's you know not convinced that there's going to be any progress in government so to me this so, is a big a big power play right was he allied with the crawlers i think so they it's all it's all very confusing isn't it like you said it starts to become this clusterfuck of different factions all kind of 
in a, in a big stew. You have the good guys and the bad guys, but I don't really know what. It seems like what the different like Sewell seems to want to achieve something very different to what the crawlers want to achieve, because for Sewell to get his way, he needs a very stable society. Whereas yeah. the crawlers want to destroy society. Yeah, and later on in the so basically they introduce this the crawlers, which are this like subterranean race of people who are super modifying their bodies and they're you know suspected to be cannibals and they're a bit crazy. They are cannibals. They? Yeah, it's they confirmed. are cannibals. Yeah, they, tor- they torture people and eat them alive. They're the most evil group of evil evils that ever eviled. Yeah, and I think the crawlers are like the single worst part of the the plot. Um, <laughs> So there's this other faction, and we've already gone into spoilers. So basically, Saul gets the military laser, um, and I'm perfectly fine with this military laser existing that can start natural disasters because there was war on such a scale that humanity was entirely forced under the ocean. Like these apocalyptic weapons, that makes sense. Um, So he fires this one off, and it disrupts, like I guess, the Earth's plates. Uh, And then... From under the earth comes this other race of beings, um, which are like this silicon-based squid kind of thing, right? And they're, they're sea like monsters. The old sea monsters, basically, yeah. And I was okay with that, like, unexpected consequence. Um, the crawlers, however, kind of come out of nowhere, and their purpose in the plot isn't super clear. Like, at some point, they're actively attacking Brainfire, and then suddenly they're working with it, and then suddenly Sewell's like, they've served their purpose. But what purpose was that? Um, I, I don't really understand, honestly. Uh, when I was a kid and I was playing this game, I thought that I was too stupid to understand. Uh, now I know it's just poor storytelling. <laughs> at at um, some point, after Sewell has um, defected, you protect Brainfire. I don't know if you remember that. You, there's literally a point where you're defending brain Brainfire from... Um, from the crawlers and i was like what is even going on are we opposed to brain fire doesn't sewell support brain fire What's, yeah this this is after he's killed admiral cox and we're protecting it I, yeah it's, well, no, it's... yeah so i mean brain fire belongs to the government and sewell has defected from the government so this this is before sewell occupies brain fire and this is before that where Brainfire is still government property, so they're still defending government property. Because I, I did note this did stick out to me, and then I thought about it some more, and I think it does make sense. Um, but it's a bit weird. The end result is basically the underwater society is completely on the brink, and I don't mind the idea that there's all of these antagonistic factions in this big soup. Like you're, you know, being attacked from all sides, and everything's like terrible. I just think that the journey to get there wasn't well written enough to justify it. Yeah, um, with the crawlers, I thought of a parallel, uh, a couple of parallels actually that were done far better. Um, Underrail has a version of Subterraneans that is so much more nuanced and interesting than this. But the one that really came to mind was Firefly. Have you seen Firefly games? Uh, I have not. Okay. I won't um, watch Firefly. It's, it's very good. Um, everyone just... Uh, I won't spoil it So for you either, James. I was going to talk about it in more detail. But basically, there are a group of people in Firefly who are very similar to the Crawlers in that they're cannibalistic and awful. One of the fantastic lines was, um, 
they're hoping to not get caught by this group. And uh, one of the people asked, they say, what are they going to do, do to us? And they said, well, they're going to kill us. They're going to flay us. Then they're going to rape us. And if we're very lucky, they'll do it in that order. So <laughs> not that, I mean, it's, it's horrific. It's very effective. Not that far away from the crawlers. However, they don't just exist as that. There is a reason for them existing, and it's a reason that heavily ties into a lot of the secrets and mysteries of the series, and it's a very satisfying reveal when it does get revealed. And I just thought, when I thought of these guys, I'm like, well, what's the deeper meaning? And there is no deeper meaning. They're just made to be evil, evil subterraneans who are Satan worshippers, etc., etc. So, yeah, they're just underwritten, uninteresting you can do better for bad guys than this. I mean, Sewell is a, an example of a, of a better bad guy. Like, he's got a motivation and everything. Yeah, I don't think Sewell's great, but he's a lot better than the Crawlers, that's for sure. I think they have the potential to be interesting villains, I guess. Um, but, like, they already had so much to draw on with the Bions. And, like, I think, it, honestly, after the game ends and you watch the end credits... I think that the setup for, you know, this next game that didn't really happen is really cool. Like, they imply that, sure, the Bionts were destroyed on the sea off the coast of Australia, but actually, now that they have access to Brainfire Satellite and they can finally, you know, see pictures of the Earth for the first time in centuries, that the, you know, the surface has become this mechanized weapon production facility of the Bionts because they're, you know, they're mechanical, they can survive above the Earth. And that's horrifying because there are all these crazy self-replicating cities up there. I'm like, that shit's really cool. That could be a great plot for the next game if the you know if they hadn't gone a completely different direction for two but uh the crawlers really didn't go anywhere um you know and while i it's hard for me because i like i feel like i i love this game and i love the plot and the characters even though i can recognize that they're not that great here objectively i think that the crawlers are terribly written villains yeah overall with the plot i think it's a tangled mess um as you said it starts off fine but then it just goes from bad to worse and i think it really does stand in stark contrast to the elegance of archimedean dynasty's plot which i think had a had really good pacing and build up and i really liked how the different factions were able to put aside their differences and cooperate against a common enemy. Now that's a common trope in a lot of stories, but because the tension and conflict is so ever-present in AD, being able to see that kind of diffused by you joining joining these organizations and gradually get absorbed into the military ranks was just very, very satisfying, that whole progress. So, I don't know. To me, it's a dramatic drop-off, and I think the plot is quite bad. Yeah, see... Archimedean Dynasty's overall plot, in my eyes, is kind of boring. Yes. Like, the idea is there, but the Bionts are, you know, they have no personality, mm. there's no characters behind them. They're an interesting concept that doesn't get fleshed out enough. Like, they're just enemies that have no, you know, there's nothing to them. Yes. You know, they're just enemies, you've got to kill them. Uh, 
I think Sewell is a better villain than the Bionce from the first game, and I don't think Sewell's a particularly good villain, but I think that he could have been a good villain, right? Like, I think the idea of having these these this government at a standstill because one of the governments wants to push human genetics into this, you know, crazy radical direction that actually kind of makes sense um you know for their current environment i think that could have been really interesting uh, i think it has the potential to be a lot more interesting than the biance do uh but they just didn't do a good job of it no i i agree the biance weren't interest weren't a particularly interesting threat but that's because the interesting thing thing was the humans um it's just yeah. like with the expanse uh expanse has a similar sort of thing where there's this external threat that dramatically affects how all the humans different human factions are interacting with one another and um yeah that that's what what ad reminded me of the external threat is almost irrelevant on some level it's that there's an external threat there and how all us rats in a cage react so but you make a good point about the violence the violence aren't very interesting either i'm not selling either of these games that i like so much very well here (laughs) um So, uh, anything else for the um, for the story or plot, James? Well, it's like an hour and seven minutes, uh, probably longer with the music break. We should probably start talking about the gameplay. Okay, well, let's have another quick music break. Uh, we've already talked about the music in depth, but uh, this is the track that I chose. Uh, what's it called again, James? Uh, I think it'll be Yelling Hell, which is one of the main battle themes that you'll hear yeah, throughout the game. I hate to admit it, but um, even though I was a bit higher on the music, they are kind of samey, and that's okay. They're, they're, they're different enough, but uh, yeah, I struggled to give a different name to them. So this is Yelling Hell. Hope you enjoy. was yelling hell and now we're going to go into a bit of a discussion about the gameplay so while i personally even though i think the story is very flawed and like has a lot of problems i still love it to bits now that i've played archimedean dynasty and come back to aquinox i think that the gameplay is a huge step down so when we played Archimedean Dynasty, one of the main things that characterized the gameplay was that it was very, it was almost sim-like, right? Like you had all these controls all over your keyboard, you needed to use the function keys to activate turrets to make them target missiles behind you, to target enemy ships, and those were different function keys. You needed to like 
move the speed of your ship up and down with two buttons while also steering. Um, here, the game kind of like controls like your average first person shooter just with the added, you know, axis of movement. It's very much a more arcadey game uh, that's much simpler to pick up and play, but it loses so much kind of like joy of discovery and mastery, right? Like when I finished, started Archimedean Dynasty, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but by the end of the game, I was very competent at piloting my ship, at toggling my turrets between different enemies and, all you know, micromanaging all this little stuff that made me, you know, proud of what I had accomplished. I felt like I'd mastered something, I'd gotten good at it, and that was really satisfying. Here, you never really progress further than, you know, what you begin at. It's very straightforward and i feel that it loses so much because of you know this shift to name some other things that have changed um your draw distance has improved dramatically you can see a lot further one of the things about ad that felt very true to this under underwater thing is that your vision was really really small you had to rely on your navigational aids and radar functions to identify targets and you also had the topography map down the bottom, which showed you the layout of the land in front of you. And you had to be able to read that kind of those multiple data endpoints in order to navigate your way around. In, Aqu in Aquinox, you just fly your ship around and what you can see is what you can engage with. Um, it's And as another thing, it's easier to identify targets and see them in Aquinox. You can just see seven targets at once and engage them at your leisure. Um, the maps are simpler. You're usually fighting in open spaces. There are a couple of places where you're fighting around buildings and structures, but for the most part, you're just in open terrain. Uh, in Archimedean Dynasty, you are often fighting around structures, uh, and you are also often fighting in uneven terrain. So you could use the terrain as a place to hide from enemy missiles quite a lot. Um, there's a roof in Aquinox. You can't go too high. It just stops you doing it. It, it stops you going off yeah. of, uh, past a certain height. Uh, you default to doing more straight firing in Aquinox as opposed to chase dog fighting. Like in Archimedean Dynasty, a lot of the time you'd be on an enemy's tail chasing them. You can't really do that in Aquinox because of how easily enemies can kind of turn on dime. So you often end up just sitting back, strafing left and right, or sometimes even just backing up shooting. Um, the missions are smaller and more linear. You're kind of just going from point A to B, and every time you need to go to a new checkpoint, your computer tells you, go to this next checkpoint. Uh, the game is simpler in a thousand ways in Archimedean Dynasty, and James, I couldn't agree more. It's considerably for the worse. Uh, the gameplay is straight up less interesting, less engaging than anything in AD. Yeah, um, I have a, a few specific criticisms of it in general. So one of the things that I sorely missed in Aquinox that Archimedean Dynasty has is when you lock onto an enemy in Archimedean Dynasty, there is a second reticule on the screen that moves about. And if you shoot at that reticule, even if you're you know, like you're, the other ship's moving, you're going to hit your shots because, you know, it's your ship's computer telling you where to shoot to get these lead-on shots of a moving target. That's not present here, so what I find happens a lot is that it's really hard to kind of like uh, know where you need to be shooting to hit your targets, so even though things don't have that much health, they usually take a lot longer to die because, you know, you're missing this crucial HUD element that I, you know, I really missed. 
Um, secondly, like I agree with you about you know the the navigation equipment not being as important. You do still have this really cool like three D map in the middle of the screen, which I love to pieces. I think it's really useful, mm. but you don't use it as much in this game because you have so much vision. Um, finally, the missile game is so much less interesting here. In Archimedean Dynasty, if there was a missile on your tail, you could like dive to the floor of the sea to have it crash into the sea bottom, and you could use turrets and make your turret. But you don't have turrets in this game, uh, and you don't really have that sea bottom interaction either. So uh, missiles, you kind of just press a button and it like makes them not chase you anymore. It's really not as fun. Critically, I don't, I don't know if this, I can't remember if this is the case. But something that really annoyed me about the way torpedoes work in this game is that the moment a torpedo is fired at you, it starts beeping. Whereas what it should do is the closer it gets to you, it should start beeping more and more rapidly. Um, and I can't remember if that's the way it worked in AD. But if it does work that way instead of the way it works in this game, um, it would mean that you can time your response to torpedoes that you can't see it's a 360 degree game so often you can't see torpedoes that are headed towards you but you have no way of identifying yeah. using audio how close those torpedoes are to you i also found that yeah. firing torpedoes was way less interesting in this game because torpedo lock-on and movement speed is considerably worse than in archimedean dynasty and the way I used torpedoes in this game was I got the Big Bang torpedoes, I flew up to point-blank range, and I fired them at the craft in front of me. Um, I did that in Archimedean Dynasty 2, to be fair. Sure. Uh, in Archimedean Dynasty, the ships are a lot bigger in general, so missing your shots a lot harder. And I found myself against like the frigates and the, the bombers just like having my nose in the back of them because that was the safest spot. They can't yeah. shoot you if you're in their ass. I, I just um, specifically remember versus the Bion. I can't remember if it's called the Flash Shark or not, but the EMP uh, torpedoes, they became yeah, the incredibly shark. important for me in a lot of those later stages of the Bion fights. And that stuff like that was just never relevant in this game at all. Yeah, not at all. Um, I think that the gameplay is a significant set step down in most areas. Um, there is one area in which I think that Aquinox's gameplay, uh, two actually, that the Aquinox's gameplay is significantly improved, uh, although, you know, overall it's not better, is that I think the weapon variety here is just much better. In Archimedean Dynasty, you kind of like, you had one rapid fire gun, and then you upgraded it so it shot two bullets and then to three. So it's like shooting, you know, a grid of bullets. The, the weapons you got weren't very interesting. Like the way I describe Aquinox's weapons, it's, it's more like Unreal Tournament weapons, kind of. Yeah. Uh, you have like, there's weapons that are kind of like the Spin Fuser from Tribes, like these low fire rate, higher damage weapons that are kind of satisfying to hit and i liked those weapons a lot whenever i got to use them that was when i was having the most fun in this game but that was like near the start of the game and in the middle of the game and then near the end of the game you're kind of forced to use the like rapid fire weapons Laser which gun. are like nowhere near as fun to use uh which to me is a significant problem i think there needed to be a third tier of spin fuser like weapons and then honestly i would have liked the gameplay 
uh, on average a lot more across the whole experience. I did also like that most of the weapons had two modes of fire, one rapid fire close yeah. range and one kind of slower but uh, higher damaging long range. So I agree that um, the weapon variety is definitely better. Also, I think that in our negativity, we're maybe being slightly too hard on it. Yeah. So it's not... And this is this is kind of the nature of doing like a sequel episode, right? We can't help but compare it to the other game. On the yeah. face of it, it's not bad. Like it's a it's yeah. fun. I had an all right time with it. Um, but I wouldn't say it's better than we've also played Freelancer, was it or Free Space yeah. Freelancer? And I think Freelancer's base fight combat is like considerably better than this. Um, yes, Aquinox just ends up being kind of like okay pretty fun at times but ultimately pretty shallow and uninteresting you kind of mentioned this before in Archimedean dynasty and in freelancer when you're doing this like dog fighting gameplay you are kind of like on the tail of your opponent a lot mm. where here i felt like i was stationary and my opponent was stationary and i kind of wanted that to be the case because then it made hitting shots easier like even though I take damage, my shield kind of regenerated fast enough that it was worth just taking the damage. So you kind of end up in these very like static positions where you're just both shooting at each other and, you know, the enemy dies first and that's it, I found. Whereas that didn't really happen in those other games. And I think that's something that makes uh, this game feel kind of sluggish. Like you start off the game with a really slow vessel. Uh, so, you know, to begin with, you're kind of on the back foot. And then the first enemy you face, the design of the ship, it's like, it's like flat. Yeah. So it's, it's like flat. So it's really annoying. So you, like you need to be above it so that you can shoot, you know, the big area. But if you're facing it head on, like the area for you to, you to shoot is tiny. So it's really frustrating because you can't like move fast enough to get into a good spot i mean maybe that was designed intentionally to make you aim better but i mean it just meant i was trying to stay perfectly still in the hopes that i would bait the enemy into staying perfectly still so i could shoot them and this shit is making me want to play freelancer again and you know freelancer had the different ship designs so you could have those big heavy merchant ships that were slow but were covered in turrets and yeah yeah <laughs> yeah visual, visual, actually yeah, it's a bit of a side note but visually i do like the designs of the ships in this game uh i think that lots of them have a lot of personality the various factions have some really unique looking ships i particularly like uh and the entropole ships the big like lobster looking things um and I think amongst the crawlers the crawler bomber the one that has the big claw on the front looks really cool uh I think that visually the ship designs are cool. I think you're right. And I, I like some of the monstrosities as well. I think they're quite good. Yeah. Um, I will say just from a like a visual standpoint, like we, we've talked a little bit about the UI, but I also liked AD's UI setup like better. Yeah, cockpit setup yeah. as opposed to... This is your face is like pushed against the glass screen of your submarine. It's a it's a first person perspective, and I think that AD's cockpit uh, viewpoint was a lot more immersive. And it made getting new ships feel different because when mm. you got a new ship in Archimedean Dynasty, your cockpit and your interface changed too. So yeah, it felt that's very. Right. It all changed. It wasn't. It wasn't just the yeah. It wasn't just a stats buff. It was like you have a different ship. 
Um, whereas that's not present here. Um, but like you're saying, I, I agree with you. We're listing a lot of negatives, but I think the key takeaway is that this game's combat is worse than Archimedean Dynasties, but overall it's like, it's like, okay. Like I had fun. St I still had fun playing it, but it was kind of like, I could be having more fun with this other game kind of fun. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the mission design. Um, it starts off incredibly simple like go from yeah. a to b kill everything there protect this thing then as the game progresses it starts to get a bit more complicated but it gets more complicated more in the sense that there are more objectives to accomplish in a given mission um yeah. instead of you know the mission structures are getting fundamentally more complicated the main yeah. problem i had with these missions well firstly they're just kind of like the places you're fighting aren't particularly interesting. It's all open water. But the main aspect of the missions I want to hone in on is the protect missions and the protect aspects of missions and the way that the mission instantly fails if you don't protect a thing in time. Because this, there are so many times playing this game where you get an objective, defend X, and if you are not very quick at immediately shooting the eight things that are shooting X so that they stop shooting X and start shooting you, you get a mission failure and you got to start from scratch. Yeah, well, I mean, you don't have to destroy the ships. If you get one bullet on all five of them, for example, they will all turn and start shooting you instead. I so did figure that out. You can kind of, yeah, you can kind of distract them. Uh I'm going to say this wasn't a problem for me because I played the game a lot. Um, I was playing on, like, the second hardest difficulty, and I don't think I game over to this this playthrough because um, I've just done these missions a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. But I can imagine that being frustrating. Yeah, I game over. Uh, particularly, there was one mission, I think it was, like, the second last mission or the last mission where you have to, you have to like, defend... It was one of the multi-part missions where you go and fight the big monstrosity and then come back, and then the monstrosity comes again. Uh, yeah. But yeah, and there was also that self-destruct mission, which I failed like two or three times. It, it happened It happened a lot. I failed a lot of missions. Luckily, most of them are short enough that it only takes two to three minutes to get back to where you were before. But um, yeah, I generally don't find defending these slow-moving transports are very interesting particularly when the fights are so hectic uh it felt like a lot of the success was how efficiently you were able to dispose of the enemy ships before that transport ship arrived yeah that's a fair point um i think that in terms of the mission structure i think that one thing this game does do better than archimedean dynasty is like i feel like the mission objectives feel more real here Whereas in Archimedean Dynasty, I felt like I was doing what the mission told me to do and wasn't super sure how it tied into the story. Here, it's always very explicit what's happening, like what faction's doing what, why you're doing the things you're doing. And like, you know, you've got people on the intercom with voice acting this time instead of just like a little note at the bottom of the screen that says, go to A, kill B. It's like these characters are talking to you now and they're telling you why you need to be doing certain things. So I felt that the mission structure was a lot more immersive this time around. Like I knew why I was doing what I was doing in every single mission. Yeah, the um the multi the way missions updated as things happened was well done. 
it was a it was a fluid situation and uh people were reacting to the things happening to them so yeah that's that's a fair point um particularly as it gets towards the end there's a very logical flow from the start to the end yeah um so you know on the whole i think the gameplay is a step down but it's not bad uh it's just like you know it's okay yeah we're we're very negative about it because of how much it's regressed which you know for a game five years on is a shocking thing to say that it's gone backwards in so many ways but uh but it's still perfectly serviceable it's okay it's all right if if the story and everything was great we probably wouldn't mind it as much so um before before we move on to final impressions can we quickly touch on graphics and sound oh yeah of course um so did you know nvidia like back in the day had like this technology they were previewing and this was like the preview game for it so Mm. when this game came out it was like like next level mind-blowing good looking into like 2001 yeah Um, all the reviews from uh the back in the day said this game looked incredible so patrick how do you feel it's how it stands the test of time? Well, before I get into that, I do have a big thing I want to go into, James. <laughs> like, and this really fucking irritated me the entire time I played. My understanding of Archimedean Dynasty lore is that the surface of the water was covered with algae and debris. Yes. And no sunlight yes. could get through. That's a really important part of the game because you're in the dark. You're in a submarine. You have zero visibility. You can't see shit. From Mission 1 of Aquinox, there is sunlight shining through. You can see the the surface. There's sunlight (laughs) fucking everywhere, and it's lit up extremely well. I had this criticism of the game as a kid, dude. <laughs> and, uh, like, when I was, like, eight, I noticed that how weird this was. And and the thing is, you might think that this is a small thing, but it is not. It is a huge fucking thing, because that was such an important part of creating the atmosphere of Archimedean Dynasty. It's what made you believe that the, you know, oceans were so oppressive because humanity was sealed inside the oceans. They hadn't seen sunlight for literally hundreds of years. And then Aquanaut starts and five years later, it's all sunny and bright and colorful. So from a purely technical standpoint, looking back at what it is today, it's all right. Like it, it's, it's bright, the colors are nice, it's easy on the eyes. From the point of viewers like, what has this game done to the atmosphere, the dreary, dank atmosphere of what, what this game used to be? It enrages me. It makes me upset. Why would you choose this game of all games, this franchise of all franchises, to have this bright fucking sunny, sunny view of the graphics? It really annoys me. And it's obvious what it is, right? It's like them trying out the new like lighting engine with the <sighs> new graphics card of the year, right? Like they definitely added this in to showcase the power of whatever card this came out with. People are always like, "What's a sun?" <laughs> and then you can just like see the sunlight from above the ocean. Yeah, that was fucking weird. Like even if you um hadn't seen the sun, you'd know what the sun was. Like they're not flint flint isn't ignorant of the existence of the sun what yeah i don't know why he said what's the sun maybe it was a joke and the voice acting didn't convey it because like 
The very first fucking cutscene is him being in this like chamber that simulates the surface. Yeah. Um, and then he's like, "What's the sun?" He's like, "What the fuck is going on here?" Yeah. I also didn't like the sun. Like, um, graphical quality. So I think it looks fine. Um, mm. I think that the story segments, because they're like two D and hand drawn, um, you know, are fine. Um, I in Equinox two they make the character portraits more like grounded and gritty again which mm. i prefer for this setting like a lot um but it's perfectly playable i i'd say overall it's way more playable than archimedean dynasty in some ways but in others not so much it's funny i actually think that the story segments of archimedean dynasty have stood the test of time and still look good today Whereas everything here looks a bit dated. Yeah, well, I think that the um, the still hand-drawn cities in Archimedean Dynasty actually still look really good. Because yeah, I was yeah. going back and looking at some footage. And once again, it's that bit of, like, this bit here is where the mob boss lives, and here's the engineering section, and here's the bar. It feels like a real place uh, in a way that the uh, kind of identical looking stations of aquinox don't so yeah, yeah aquinox it's certainly no like one of the things we remarked about um freelancer which came out a couple of years later than this to be fair is that freelancer by today's standards still looks phenomenal like that's that's one pretty game and aquinox is nowhere near that level um it's not max pain bad but it's not uh <laughs> it's not anything wonderful either it's fine i um i, I didn't it's have perfectly with fine the graphics. yeah and like you said with the ship design and everything there's enough creativity there it's not just a bunch of square box ships there's um there's some really cool designs there that uh, elevate it um i, I just want to make one more quick note about sound if you don't mind um so i thought that the audio was quite good but i did think there were some issues with the mixing um often You'd have characters speaking on the radio and explosions going off and guns firing and you couldn't hear certain things. Um, subtitles helped a lot with that. I had them on all the time. But um, I just wanted to say the, the audio was good, but there were some mixing issues. I actually love the audio in this game still. Uh, I love the sound of switching weapons in this game. I love the, the sound. The kind of cathunk noise? Yeah, it's yeah. really satisfying. Yeah, um, The weapons sound really good when you shoot them. Uh, in general, I think that the like the sound effects are excellent. Uh, still, uh, I really enjoy them. Still, uh, voice acting is fucking terrible. It's so bad. I am so grateful we've decided to invest money into professional voice actors in today's day and age because it makes such a difference. Like it's not a small thing when you play Sekiro or one of the Dark Souls games or Last of Us or whatever professional voice actors make or break stories and characters yeah it's pretty obvious that they just got like people on the team who spoke english uh to do the translated voice acting you do uh, an indian and, like, accent oh my god it's so bad yeah there was that there was that one lady who sounded like she'd been breathing helium for like a year <laughs> just had a person keep doing breaths in and out <laughs> <laughs> 
It's like every two yeah. seconds, take a deep breath. It's not super great. I thought Flint was fine and his like dry, monotone, kind of like sleazy um, speaking, which is good because, you know, you hear him speak the most. Yes, Flint Flint was fine. I thought the Admirals, both of them, uh, Cox and um, Sulu, were, and were pretty Sulu good were as well. quite good. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they were fine. Um, El Topo was okay. El Topo was garbo. Um, did you think so? <laughs> I didn't really like much of the voice acting here, I'm going to be honest. The worst one yeah. was your wingmate, though. The, the, the girl, Lisa. Harper? Oh, my God. Oh, uh, the girl. Uh, Lisa's was bad. Yeah. Harper's was... I found Harper kind of a funny character. Ha- he, uh... My main problem with Harper is, like, when I think... I think they're like, we need to do an angry black man. And that's that's was <laughs> yeah. the end result. That's him. Yeah. Because he's just the most... It's just the most caricaturistic version of angry black man i've ever heard it's 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 borderline racist it's it's quite it's quite something honestly i thought this series as a whole didn't do that side of things too poorly there's a whole bunch of different characters from all walks of life here um and i think a bunch of them have interesting things to say i think my favorite character um is the guy who tells you the origin of the game's name basically by talking about the stories his grandfather told you Mm. his voice acting wasn't great but i liked him as a character even though he was only on screen briefly i would say it it ranges from bad to god awful the worst you've ever heard and at best it's (laughs) okay (laughs) but yeah it's not good but sorry james I've, i've talked long enough about sound you wanted me to move on to final impressions yeah, I think I know uh, pretty. I'm pretty confident I know where this is going for you, Patrick. Let's hear it. Um, okay, so the thing about Equinox is that I cannot, in good faith, recommend this game. It's not a very good game. Uh, the story is a convoluted mess that doesn't make sense. The world building uh, is so much removed, reduced from Archimedean Dynasty. The gameplay is okay, but overall fairly average. Nothing special. And graphically, once again, nothing special. I think the key thing here for me is that with sequels, you can't help but compare them to the thing that came before. And Archimedean Dynasty is an extremely good game. Like, it's very old. It was made in 1996. It's got, you know, it doesn't have all the graphical bells and whistles that you'd expect. But that game is such a deep, engaging experience in its gameplay, in its world building, in its story, in its presentation. I mean, it has a 70-page manual, for Christ's sake, explaining the story. It's it's a magnificent video game. And Aquinox feels like it's, it's little, you know, it's stupid little brother. It, they've really gone significantly backwards. And there's basically zero aspects of this game that I prefer to Archimedean Dynasty. So for all that, I can't recommend it. I'm sure that if you've played AD before and you, you know, are mainly playing for the story, you'll probably get something of value out of Aquinox, but there's no way I can recommend it out of the blue to uh, to anyone who's not super, already super invested in the story of this series. Just play AD instead and then stop playing the series. That's the That's the logical end. So I'm sorry, James, but your uh, your childhood nostalgia hasn't saved this one for me. So I actually agree with Patrick here, and I'm going to go on and say that I also can't in good faith recommend other people play this game, despite the fact that I love it to absolute bits, right? Like, this game is just so special to me. 
um, because, you know, of having it as a kid. I actually loved the world building in this game more than I do in the original Archimedean Dynasty. It kind of leans more into that, like, hard sci-fi kind of um, style that I prefer. Uh, as opposed to the like the big geopolitics of the first game you get a lot of like nitty-gritty information about all sorts of like marine biology and little you know undersea tidbits and i love hearing like uh you know every time i got to a new place i always walk up to the scientist first and listen to what they have to say because i uh adore the world building in this game playing it again for the first time in many years after playing the original now uh, I think that the gameplay is a significant step down, actually, and I was actually quite disappointed to coming back to it. Um, so, in good faith, I cannot recommend this game to somebody who hasn't played it before, despite, you know, it being one of my all-time favorite games. Oh, it's a little sad, isn't it, James? Yeah, it is a little bit, but, I mean, I still have these fond memories and i can still play this game and really enjoy it but i can't expect other people to do that right yeah and it's just you know we spend so much time smashing nostalgia like that's kind of what we do on this show <laughs> yeah. but uh i guess you know sometimes i guess for some people it's better to not to not go back and play those games i mean i i don't mind doing it if i go back into my childhood and find a game that i thought i liked but i didn't i'd be happy to say yeah this game's garbo there's so many great games out there i don't mind dismissing one or two memories but it is still a sad thing it is difficult to do too like when i replayed this game i like usually because we play the games over a two-week period um I actually almost finished this game before the last episode came out. Like, I got into playing it so early. Whereas usually I'm, like, still, like, starting the game in the second week. Whereas, like, I smashed through the game, uh, you know, almost before I'd finished editing, you know, last Fortnite's episode and had a blast. But, like, so much stuff did stick out to me as being just a regression from the previous game. So... You know, uh, difficult, but I think it's, you know, the right recommendation to give. Okay, well, I think that just about does it. Um, James and I make up the Retrospectors podcast. Thank you so much for taking your time to listen to us this fortnight. We know we spent a very long time rambling about the story. <laughs> Hopefully it was of interest to you. Each and every fortnight, James and I review classic games. Uh, we've also got a website. We put all of our content. This is episode 56. So we've got an impressive backlog for you to check out. There's also a bunch of uh, articles available that we've written about old games and new. So the name of our website is rspodcast.net. You can find all of our content there. Most importantly, we also have a Discord server. And the Discord server is where all of our community engagement comes, where we get to argue about the games we love and hate and have long and constructive, well, mostly constructive agreements and disagreements on what <laughs> games are good and why. And we would love for you to drop by. So uh, we've got a link to a Discord. It'll be in our show notes and also on our website. So with that episode wrapped up, it's time to look at what we're doing for next fortnight. And we've got a very special episode in mind. Yeah, we've got a guest coming on, don't we? Yeah, friend of the show, uh, Scion Storm, a.k.a. Drew. Probably should have said Drew, a.k.a. Scion Storm, but you get the idea. 
Yeah, so Drew hosts a podcast of his own, the WDGR podcast, Will and Drew's Gaming Retrospective. They kind of do a thing a little similar to us. They uh, play they play older new games and they reminisce on their quality. Um, it's more conversational, more laid back, um, and they were kind enough to have us on for an interview, a two-part interview uh, last year sometime, about halfway through, and it was uh, delightful talking to them. So um, we're going to have him on for a very classic old game, going a bit older than we normally do, and we're going to play a 2D brawler, Streets of Rage 2. It should be very interesting because I, James, and Drew, to my knowledge, none of us have ever played a game of this genre before. Um, I've played plenty of 3D brawlers, but I've never dipped into these 2d ones where you move along the screen and hit people with your fists i've played games like this once or twice at arcades but i've never owned one and played it extensively and i think we're going to do something extra special for this episode uh and if we can patrick and i are going to try and play through this game in co-op because it's only a couple of hours long i believe so we're gonna see if we can uh, stop ourselves from having depth discussion while playing the game but i think it'll be make for some uh, you know interesting discussion yeah the people i spoke to highly recommend giving co-op a go because that's kind of apparently it's like part of the streets of rage experience so I'm keen to get a, try and get it working if we can. Um, Drew is also going to be playing on his mini device, so we'll get some uh, different perspectives on um, on different hardware versus emulating it, so it should be interesting. So um, we'll see you in two weeks for our Streets of Rage 2 episode, uh, and it will be Patrick, James, and Drew of the Retrospectors podcast for that episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll catch you next fortnight.